But tonight we're going to pause and we're going to look, and, and I've been feeling all day long, I've had this growing sense of stupidity of like, why did I try to fit this into one night? This is, it's intimidating and overwhelming. But, but we're going to be looking at, uh, I think it's six days away, is Monday, six days away. This coming up Monday, the 31st, is the 500th anniversary of a moment that is sort of the catalytic event in what we call the Protestant Reformation. So 1517, we're in 2017, 1517 on uh, All Hallows' Eve, New Year's Eve, or not New Year's Eve, All Hallows' Eve, uh, uh, Halloween, thank you, um, the 31st, Martin Luther did this iconic event that it's, it's sort of, you just see the event and it symbolizes the whole movement. It symbolizes everything. Remember the event? He's, he's in uh, Wittenberg, and he, he goes up to the church door, these wooden doors, and we're, we're told that he takes these 95 theses, and he, he nails them to the, to the church door. I was talking to someone the other day about this, and I, I was telling them, they said, why did he nail feces to the door? I said, theses, theses. So 95 theses, I'll use it as arguments, okay? And so that's this iconic event where he does this thing and it, it like sets ablaze a whole movement. Like it changed not just the church world. And I hope you'll see this through tonight a little bit. I wish we could go into it more. But it really opened a door that ushered in the modern world. Much of the things that we take for granted today, if you're a Westerner, it doesn't matter if you're a secular, if you could be an atheist, but we, we take them for granted, but they came as a result of this door that Martin Luther opened from the medieval world into, into the modern world. Before I do that, let me just tell a quick story. Back in 1934, there was an African-American pastor who lived in Georgia, he was a pastor of a little Baptist church down in Georgia, and he was going to take the trip of his lifetime. And so he, he got on a boat, and he sailed across the Atlantic through the gates of Gibraltar, through the Mediterranean Sea, and his main place of destination was the Holy Land. And so he spent some time there traveling around Israel, kind of a little Israel study tour. But then on his way back, he, he went through Berlin, uh, this this minister reverend his his name was Michael King, and Reverend Michael King uh, went to Berlin because there was a Baptist minister's convention there, and in his time there, coming in contact with the the history the lineage of this man Martin Luther, he was so taken by what this guy had done, not just to the church, but to the modern world, that this man uh, Reverend uh, Michael King decided to. Um, do something dramatic to offer kind of the, the most ultimate tribute to this man's memory. And that is as an adult, Michael King decided to change his name. And so he changed his name to Martin Luther King. And he had a little boy, Michael King Jr. He's about five years old at the time. And after changing his own name and thinking about the reality of what, what had been done in this guy, and he didn't realize how much this guy had shaped the world that he changed his own son's name. And so Michael King Jr. became known to the world as Martin Luther King Jr. And see, this father-son name change, it's just, it's just one dramatic 
measure of which the influence of Martin Luther has spread enormously. It's had an enormous impact on our modern world because his actions, I would suggest, again, radically changed things in the church, but it really impacted the broader landscape. And so many things, like I said, that, that we um, just experience, think about the West, uh, things like freedom and democracy and other things like that can be traced back to this, this thing that this guy named Luther did. In fact, let me, let me read for you um, a, a quote from a, a book that I'm encouraging you guys to pick up and read. I'll tell you what it is in a second here. Eric Metaxas recently wrote uh, a biography, brand new biography on Martin Luther, and it's wonderful. I'm going through it right now. But he writes this. He, he's writing about the way in which Luther impacted the world. He says, for example, the quintessentially modern idea of the individual by that, he means uh, one's personal responsibility before oneself and God, rather than before any institution, whether church or state. That idea of the individual, he says, was unthinkable before Luther, as is color in a world of black and white. In the similarly modern idea of the people, like the masses, you know, the people, along with the democratic impulse that proceeds from it, was created or at least given voice by Luther too. He says, and the more recent ideas of pluralism, religious liberty, and self-government all entered history through the door that Luther opened to the future in which we now live. Um, I would really encourage you on the back of your bulletin I put a couple of resources on there. There's one, it's a podcast, really, really cool podcast. Um, Stephen Nichols is a guy, he's a, his, a church historian, and he does a five-minute podcast every day. And it's, or I think it's once a week or something like that, but there's a whole you know, catalog of the past. But it's called Five Minutes in Church History. And it's just these little five-minute snippets of, hey, here's something that happened. And he, he always starts out by saying, hey, guys, this is our, our story. This is our family story. And it's these moments. And, and they're fabulous. So I would encourage you to subscribe to that. And then the two books that I'm mentioning also, the first, if you want to take a look at it afterwards, this is the one by Eric Metaxas. It's fantastic. It's called Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World. And then there's a, a second book on there by Alec Ryrie, who's a professor from Durham University. It's called Protestants, the Faith that Made the Modern World. So here's what I want to do tonight. If you have a bulletin and you have it open, I think it's on the left-hand side, there's sort of a chronicle uh, or a chronology of events in Luther's life. What I want to do is walk through some of these moments, because here's the thing about Luther. Every scholar of Luther I've read, here's what they always say. Some theologians, you can just like read their theology and that's good enough. Every Luther scholar is like, you kind of have to know his biography, like, because his biography and his theology are like so interlaced. So you kind of need to know like what's going on in this guy's life, what's happening. So let's walk through a couple of, uh, of these events. We'll skip a couple. Um, and even this is not exhaustive. Like I said, we're just skimming the surface. But I think we're gonna start to see some of these ideas like emerge that were planted and really a, a humble guy kind of stumbling into a point in history that he didn't choose. And yet he finds himself there. Martin Luther is born in 1483. Um, he's born on November 10th 
in Eisleben, Germany. It's Western Germany. And he's, now think about this. He's born into the typical um, medieval world. He didn't know it then, but it's, it's toward the end of, you know, the medieval world starts at about 500 with the fall of Rome. Okay, and now we're like almost to the 1500s. That's kind of the medieval era. So we're kind of at the end of it. And he's born. And he's born into the typical world. Martin Luther is only nine years old when Columbus sets sail from Spain to discover a whole new hemisphere, <laughs> to discover this, us. Some of the inventions that, that have, had just come about maybe just 50 years before or so, for the very first time, the printing press is invented. Up until this point, if you want a book, you have to go to a monastery which has a scriptorium and there's monks in there and, and they write out your book by hand. Can you imagine? <laughs> word by word, line by line, page by page. It would typically take a minimum of a year to write a book. And so you can imagine it's also extremely expensive to have a book written for you, but in a very difficult ways. We oftentimes hear this story, people oftentimes say it as well, back in the old days, Bibles were you know, chained to the pulpit because they didn't want people to have the Bible. Well, it's not exactly, they don't want people to steal the Bible. <laughs> it's so expensive. This is an extremely expensive book. So if you want to read scripture, you have to come to the church and that's where you read it because it is chained to the pulpit. And then in 1455, the very first book ever printed in Mainz, Germany, on, on, on the Rhine River. Johannes Gutenberg has this invention, right, this printing press. And the very first book that's printed is the Bible in Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And that's the very first thing that rolls off. And this is a revolution, you guys, to information technology. It's a revolution to communication. And so Luther's born, November 10th, we know. Um, what's kind of funny is it, we say 1483. We actually don't know when the year he was born. Um, he was either born in 42, 43, or 44. Like even, this is, even his mother didn't know, and apparently she was there. But, but no one knew the date of his birth, and so people kind of, well, it's probably 43, so, so that's the one that's picked. And um, he's baptized the very next day, which is uh, October 11th. Um, November 11th, excuse me, which is St. Martin's Day. And so guess what they named him? Abigail, but he changed it later. No, they named him Martin, St. Martin for this guy. And, and so he's, he's named that. His father is a middle-class um, copper miner, middle to upper class. And um, as all parents, good parents, want for their kids, they want their kids' lives to be a little bit better than theirs. And so he gives Luther the very best education that, that he can possibly have. He learns Latin. His father didn't know Latin. And um, discovers pretty quickly that Martin's a pretty bright guy. He's very, very sharp, very intelligent. And so what, what uh, his father decides is that he's going to send him to university to study law. He's, he's going to be a lawyer because there, there's more success, there's more status, and that sort of thing. And so in 1501, he goes to Erfurt, Germany, and he, he's studying there. And um, what, what happens is, as he's there, one time, you know, he goes back and forth, rides his horse from school to home, you know, that sort of thing, and uh, one time goes home, and on the way back, as he's going back, the huge thunderstorm rolls in and it's it's massive and it knocks him to the ground and there's lightning right close by him and he's pretty sure that he's going to die 
And it's key. We'll talk in a couple minutes about what's the theology of the church at the time. Like when you die, this is kind of a big deal. So he's quite certain he's going to die. And, and, and so he calls out to St. Anne. He says, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. I'll enter the orders. And it was St. Anne because Anne was the patron saint of minors. His father is a minor. He would have grown up seeing sculptures of St. Anne as how St. Anne was supposedly the mother of the Virgin Mary. And so he calls out to St. Anne, save me, and I, and I vow I will, I will join a religious order. I will become a monk. And he keeps his vow, uh, much to his parents' dismay. He just flushed a bunch of money down the toilet that he had, that had been poured into college. He was going to be a lawyer, and now he's going to be the very lucrative career of a religious monk. And so he, he, does, he joins um, an Augustinian monastery. It's, it's very um, rigorous, very scholarly. Um, there's, you know, focus on, on prayer and... Um, penitence and study, but he hates it. Not because it's difficult. Not because it's difficult. He has extreme anxiety, growing anxiety while he's there. And the reason why is because, he, looking back years later, he said, it's because I was coming face to face with my sin. I'm spending my time looking at the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, who God is, and trying to think about my own sin. And as I'm coming face to face, I'm realizing the utter sinfulness of my sin. It's worse than I thought. <laughs> my heart is in a worse condition than I even knew. And so he's becoming almost to a place of despair. And so he says, well, I'll just work harder at it. I'll do more confession. I'll do, I'll do, more, I'll do more penance. But what he finds is that the more he tries to expunge sin from his life, the more he realizes how absolutely buried he is in sin in his life. In fact, he's got this great line later in his life. This is a very Lutheresque thing. He said, if ever a monk could, go, could get to heaven from his monkery, it is I. I just love that because the word monkery is in there. You know, try to fit that into a sentence, a conversation with someone this next week. Um, and so the clear he saw God utterly holy, it revealed how utterly sinful, how, how far away he was from the righteousness of God. And he knew that God required righteousness. God says things like, be holy as I am holy. And he just thought, this is a losing battle. I don't know how I can do it. And he would, he would spend like hours in confession. Um, we're we're told, you know, the, the, his, his confessor, the person he would, he would confess to in this monastery, he would go into confession, and he'd be there, like, all the time. He's, like, always standing in line. So the guy taking his confessions, he's, just like, rolling his eyes, like, oh, my goodness, Martin's back. Okay, what'd you do? And, and he's confessing things that seem so tiny. They're just, like, you know, and he would be in there for hours confessing. And finally, his confessor would say things like, Martin, go sin and then come back when you've really got something. But stop it with this. This is ridiculous. Or another time he said to Martin, he said, Martin, just love God more. And he said, but I don't love God. I hate him. He said, what do you mean? He goes, I, it's God's justice that condemns me, and it rightly condemns me, and I hate that. And God's this angry being who, and I, I hate that. I want to love God, but I can't even love him. And so what, a, what his, uh, his good superior does, like anyone anyway, you say, you need to go to school. 
And so he sends him off to university and says, you know, try to do the life of the mind. Maybe, maybe that will be a better place for you. And so he, he sends him to university. And um, it's there. So in 1508, he goes to the University of Wittenberg. And this is where he pretty much spends the rest of his life. Now, he's going to be, um, he's born in Eisleben most of his life in Wittenberg. He dies back in Eisleben, but he's buried in Wittenberg. Wittenberg is sort of the place of Luther. And so, and so he goes there. Uh, he, many things happen. Earns, earns his doctorate. But it's while he's there, it's, it's probably almost a 10-year period, where he, he's teaching. He becomes a, a, he becomes a lecturer there. So he earns his doctorate, then becomes a teacher at the University of Wittenberg. And he's lecturing on the Psalms. He's lecturing on Romans. He's lecturing on Galatians and on the book of Hebrews. And all of this, he's like, during this time, he's laying the foundation for all this stuff that that is going to come. And it's during this time, we don't exactly know when, but he said, that's when I had my breakthrough moment. That's when it happened. And this is kind of where it gets to the series, the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. If, if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 1. So Luther's been studying the book of Romans. He's been looking at it, and he's, he's reading this passage, Romans chapter 1, and it's verse 17 that's the key verse, the verse that he most misunderstood throughout his whole life and tripped him up. And uh, so I'll start reading verse 16. Romans 1, 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power, it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also the Greek. And then here's the key verse. For it's God's righteous, for God's righteousness is revealed. Now remember, to Luther, this was never, God's righteousness was never a good thing in the sense of um, it's his righteousness that condemns Luther. It's a, so God's righteousness is revealed, and he says, um, or he goes on to write, Paul says, from faith to faith, just as it is written, and then he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk, he says, the righteous will live by faith. One year before, um, the Greek New Testament had been completed. Up until this time, remember the very first Bible that, was, that came out hot off the printing press? Bible, it's in Latin, so it's a translation from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. The Renaissance has just taken place, or it's taking place. Discovery of original languages, study of the humanities, and so Luther has just gotten his hands on a Greek New Testament. That's like original languages, instead of reading a translation. And so he goes back to this passage, and he realizes the word that that they're using in, in Latin for God's righteousness... God's righteousness is revealed, okay? The Latin word means like the process of making you actually righteous. Well, he looked at the Greek word, and the Greek word, it's a slight tweak. It means to be regarded as already righteous. And he was like, oh my goodness. It was like the skeleton key was the key that opened all the doors. All of a sudden, he got it. And he said, wait a minute, God's righteousness is revealed, meaning declaring considering already righteous, from faith to faith, and he says, just as, as is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
And he goes, oh my, oh my goodness, it's not, it's not about my righteousness. The text is not saying my becoming good enough. It's saying someone else's righteousness is given to me. It's given to my account. It's, it's imputed into me. And so he used words like a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness. It's not like UFO alien. Alien just means outside of yourself. And it does, your righteousness has got zip to do with you. Someone else's righteousness is given to my account. And he says that was the moment at which his language was, he says, it's like the doors of paradise were opened up to me and I walked in and he said, and that's when I became born again. And my, the guy's got a doctorate in theology and he's teaching in the church. And he said, that's when I became a believer. <laughs> right there. Because I finally got the pure beauty of the gospel. And that acted as this skeleton key, this master key that unlocked every other door of the issues he was wrestling with. Where can I find a, a good God? How can I be acceptable to him? And he goes, because it's not about my righteousness. Oh, man. It changed, absolutely changed his life. Now, here's where we're coming to the climax of the story. Because when you think about the, there's a lot of things going on. Here's the question. How is it that Luther's private spiritual experience becomes a public crisis? Right? Isn't that weird? I mean, the guy was just, he sort of figured something out on his own. Well, what do is, what is scholars, what do pastors, what, you know, what do they start doing? Once they, figure, once they have an epiphany, they start writing about it, and they start teaching on it, and they, and they put it in their sermons. And, they, and so he starts talking about this. This is in his writing, and it's in his thoughts, it's in his sermons, it's in his conversations with his students, and so many more. And this is where we come to the key idea that really uh, trips Luther, bugs him, that he says, hold on, hold on. And that's this word, indulgences. Have you heard this word before? Indulgences. If you grew up in a, in a Roman Catholic tradition, you would probably be familiar with the concept of indulgences. Let me do this. Let me take a mini break. I want to explain to you the, the sort of um, medieval Christian theology that was official doctrine at the time to help kind of explain more of this. Um, if you have a bulletin, Draw, or if you've got a great imagination picture, draw a little mini treadmill. Okay? I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Draw a treadmill. I'm going to take a drink. Draw a treadmill. And then look at what kind of artist your neighbor is. So you've got a treadmill. This is basically a Christian's life, and I want you to write on the treadmill... Remember we talked about our salvation being an amount of accounting, of you know, God kind of um, putting something to our account. Uh, we, you, this is what you can remember. An accountant is, uh, who has all their credentials is called a CPA. Okay? So right on top of that treadmill, CPA. So here's a picture of it. When a person's born, you have to be baptized. Minimal. That's sort of minimal requirement to be saved. If you, if you die without being baptized, you, you go to hell. Unless you're an infant, you go to the outer area of limbo. But bare minimum, you, you have to be baptized. And all, all of your past sins, original sins, are washed away. The problem is, you're going to sin in the future, right? So as you, you, have, you have ongoing sins. And so as soon as you're born, you're baptized once at least, you're of age to make decisions, you're on the treadmill, okay? You're going on this treadmill. And basically, you live your life 
between once, if, okay, this is a giant treadmill. I get on it. Um, once I've sinned, I'm at the back of the treadmill and fall off. Okay? I confess my sin. That's the C. I confess, and then I do penance. I'm told, okay, you've confessed. Uh, go do this, read that, say, say seven Hail Marys, do certain activities, and then I receive absolution. That's the CPA. Okay? Confession, penance, and absolution. My goal is that I die when I'm at the front of the treadmill, when I've received absolution from all my sins. Because I've confessed them, I've done my penance, and I receive absolution, total forgiveness. Okay? That's hopefully when I die. <laughs> and so Christians live their life somewhere on this treadmill between absolution and then further sin, and they've got to go back to confession and then penance and then absolution. And so it's kind of a big deal because basically wherever... Wherever you are on that treadmill, when you die, determines your eternal destiny. And so, of course, the, if you die with sins unconfessed or penances unconformed, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty tough, austere reading, right? I mean, that's a, ooh, you know, most Christians aren't even going to make the cut. So it's by the late Middle Ages that, that this idea of purgatory kind of softens it. Because essentially what it says is any sins that are unconfessed or penances unconformed, um, you, you, you go to a place of suffering. It's similar to hell, but you have the chance to work off those unconfessed sins there. And you're not even in a sense alone there because the living can do penance for you and they pray for you. And the saints also who have gone on and who have died, they pray for you. And see, the prayer is basically, and, and, and so this is where indulgences come in. The Pope is the, the vicar of Christ. He's the representative. And he, um, and again, I don't mean to say this in a crass way, but I just want to make it simple and not use big, big words. But basically, the Pope has sort of a, a bank account of merit. Merit means all of the good things that the saints have done over the millennia are sort of in this bank account that can be applied to you like grace, okay? It's called treasury of merit. And the Pope has the ability to hand out an indulgence, to forgive, to give absolution, to forgive certain sins. Does that make sense? So the Pope, as the vicar of Christ, holding the keys, that sort of thing, he has the ability to do that. Well, um, as you can imagine, uh, imagine yourself as a, you're, you're asked by, you're asked by your, your community, your church, your pope, we want you to go, for instance, we hit the crusades. I want you to go on a crusade. You're going to be doing something for the empire, for the kingdom, that sort of thing. Well, it's a good chance I'm going to die in the battlefield with what? Unconfessed. I can't make a full confession on the battlefield, right? That doesn't sound. And so things are, okay, well, how about this? The pope, I will apply... Uh, some indulgences to any unconfessed sins you have that will take care of it. So your service for the church, the, if you serve, you'll get indulgence. Does that make sense? And then other things start to happen, as you can imagine. You know, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome is being built. It's very expensive. I would like to give a gift to the church. Well, I'll give you an indulgence if you give a gift to the church. And so people can... Now, this is kind of straightforward economics, it's never stated indulgences are for sale, but in practical purposes, it ends up kind of working like that. And so by the 1500s, Luther, okay, it's very commonplace 
for indulgences to be bought. Not just for the service, but, you know, hey, I, I gave money or that sort of thing, right? Because there's a high demand for them. Man, baby, if I'm on this, you know, treadmill, I don't, I, I want to be, I want to be here. I want to have absolution. And it's pretty easy for the church to, yeah, sure, I'll write you an indulgence. You got a piece of paper, you know what I mean? I mean, that's an easy thing to hand out. The demand's high and it's easy to do. And so you can imagine the kind of abuse that's going on. Now, Luther, who is wrestling with what it means to be justified, I'm accepted by God, not by what I do, but by his righteousness. So then someone comes through Wittenberg selling indulgences, representing different parts of the church. And just to give you an idea of how crass it got, there was a monk by the name of Johann Tetzel that wrote a little jingle and as he would go from town to town, he would kind of say this jingle in, in selling indulgences. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, do you know what? A soul from purgatory springs, right? That's like the little, you know, sales jingle at, you know, Christmas. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory, you can help those people quickly get out of purgatory if you give money. So it had turned into a racket. Groups come through Wittenberg. Luther's there, he hears this, he sees this, he's wrestling with what is salvation really biblically. And so this is, uh, you know, what does he do? Well, he does what any good academic would do. He publishes a, a, sor a short series of arguments, uh, 95 to be exact. This is a facsimile of the first printed one. He would have done it by hand. And these are his 95 I'll say theses, okay, 95 theses, 95 arguments. Basically what he's, he's lining out, this is what I think is wrong with this whole indulgence thing. And, and then what he would do is um, he, he went, as the story tells us, that he went to the church, castle church door at Wittenberg, and he nailed it to the church door. Now, that's not like some radical thing. It's, it's basically like this is where you would post things, you know what I mean? That's like, hey, oh, oh there's a... Uh, I don't know, little meal going on later this week or something like that. Um, but th scholars would do this when they would say, I want to have, have an argument about these ideas. I want to talk about it. I want to wrestle. I want to scrub this stuff and really talk about it. In fact, I asked one of our group just out of appropriateness to, I bet I said don't nail it, to put a copy on the back door. So there's another copy of it if you want to take a look at it afterwards or you can come take a look at this one too. And so he, he nails these 95 theses on the church door saying that he wants to have this debate. And um, it, it, it turns into an enormous thing. He thinks that he's just going to have a quick debate over it, but it, it turns into something much more than that. Um, someone takes his 95 theses, translates them into German, because they're in Latin, only academics speak Latin. This person translates them to German, prints them quickly, it's cheap. And now the average person, now the average person kind of knows the racket too. I mean, they still got to do it, but they kind of, this doesn't seem right. It seems a little off. So the average person now, not just the scholarly world of academia, the average blue collar guy is going, yeah, that, that does seem a little odd. And they're just short bullet point, one, two sentence things. And, and so it, it starts this huge movement. And um, literally within a short period of time, Luther became a celebrity, like a true celebrity among the common people. 
And so, um, you know, print is new. Again, it's been about 70 years, and so it creates this mass movement. Um, he starts writing pamphlets. No one had done this before. These are like tweets, just like short, like, I'm going to go past the media. You know, we know people who do that. I'm going to go past the media and just go right to the person, okay? So he, he would create little pamphlets that were written on the common men's level, and everyone's reading them in very, very... Uh, enthralled and persuaded by what he's doing. So over the next couple of years, he has these series of interactions. He meets with this group official or that group. And um, in 1519, you see that on there, he has one of, the most, one of the most famous debates with this guy by the name of Johann Eck. And Eck is a brilliant scholar, probably the most formidable um, opposition that Luther ever has in his life. And now, here's what Luther wants. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about ideas. I want to talk about the nature of salvation. And every person he talks to, they go, no, we're going to talk about you being obedient. Let's talk about obedience. And so he, he, he has this growing frustration because no one will take on his ideas. They just say, this isn't about salvation. This is about you being obedient, an obedient son to the church, and you're not obedient. Let's talk about obedience. And so he has this growing frustration, and Eck knows in this meeting, um, you know, his hope is that he will recant and confess and say, ah, I'm sorry, I don't believe any of that stuff. But he also knows that Luther has, like, titanic reserves of, uh, I mean, he is just committed to this. And so, um, and so Eck finally says, okay, well, uh, so are you telling me that if the church and all of its councils and all that stuff disagrees with what you think is true, the church is wrong? And he kind of paints him into a corner. And Luther basically goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, then it's, oh, heresy, heretic. You're a heretic. Because he's saying, basically, the, the church and its whole councils can err. It can be wrong. It can be absolutely wrong. And so he, he, he paints him into this corner, and um, basically what, what he's forced to, and he's not even going there. Luther loved the church. He was a good Catholic. He wanted to reform. There have been other reformers before. But there was an unwillingness to deal with the ideas, and it was just a matter of obedience. And so he's basically almost stumbling into one of the first cardinal pieces of the Reformation, and that's sola scriptura, scripture alone. It doesn't mean that you don't read anything else. What it means is the final arbiter, the final decider, the final judge on what truth is, is Scripture, the Bible. Not what you say about it, but the Bible itself. And so there's no, basically, there's no um, final authoritative interpreter, pope, councils, whatever. It's just bare Scripture, that was not talked about before. What are, you, what are you talking about? You have to have someone in power to interpret it. And so he's kind of almost forced to come up with that first sola. There, there are five, um, what they call the five solas. Sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. There's sola fide, which is faith alone. That, that was that piece in the Romans passage, which is by faith alone. Sola gratia, which is it's by grace alone. Solus Christus. It's Christ alone. It's his merit. It's not some saint's merit or anything I do on the treadmill. It's his uh, merit alone. And then soli deo gloria, to, to God alone be glory. 
Those are kind of the five solas of the Reformation. Well, as you can imagine, uh, the Pope gets wind of this. He says, okay, I'm going to send him, it was, it was called a papal bull. It's basically a formal letter which says, you've got, you've got 60 days to recant or you know, trouble kind of thing. Um, 60 days goes by. This is Pope Leo X. And, uh, and so Pope Leo officially excommunicates Luther. Now, this is a big deal because within Roman Catholic dogma, salvation is only found in the church. If you're excommunicated, you cannot be saved. So he is excommunicated from the church, the only place where salvation can be found. And uh, Luther takes the bull, that he, this piece of paper, and he burns it in this kind of, you know, symbolic way of saying, I don't, I don't give a rip. I don't care, essentially. Now, at this point, Luther should be killed. There's a, there's a well-oiled machine to police things like this. It's happened all the time. hundred years before, a guy by the name of John Huss, he burned at the stake. Wycliffe burned at the Tons of guys kind of tried some of this stuff. But there were all these unique, weird things going on at the time. The emperor at the time, Maximilian, was like on his deathbed. He literally carried his casket around with him when he traveled because he was quite sure he was going to die within days and weeks. And there are seven princes who are going to vote on the next emperor. And, and one of them is this guy who's the prince of where Luther lives. And this prince owns a, sem- a, a uh, university that Luther teaches at. And he has made this guy's university very popular because he's a celebrity. I don't want to out my best guy. And so no one wants to push back on Prince Frederick the Wise because, you know, there's political stuff going on. He's one of the voters of the next emperor. So no one really pushes it, though he should have died right there. And so uh, just a couple months later, new, he dies, Maximilian dies, new guy, little teenager from Spain named Charles. He gets on the throne. He wants to kind of show his power. He wants to flex his muscle. So he goes, I want to call Luther to an official diet, which means basically all the princes are there, It's and you're going to come and answer to us. And so it's called the Diet of Worms. Now, when you read it in English, it's the Diet of Worms. It's just a gross. It's a horrible name. But in German, it's Diet of Worms. Um, sounds a little better. And so he's summoned there, and he's even, gives, uh, he's even given safe conduct. They say, we won't kill you. Well, 100 years before, John Huss had also been given safe conduct. But what you do is, once they're there, you're like, well, a promise to a heretic is no promise at all. Burn him. You know? So he's a little nervous. Luther's nervous going to this. But, and so he, you know, he's, he's told by some of his confidence, don't do it, don't go, you're going to die. And he says, you know what? Martyrdom is one of the greatest services back for God, if that's what I have to do. I believe this so much. So he goes to Worms, Germany. And he shows up, this little Augustinian monk, okay? Professor shows up. The, the princes of the world because there's no nations at this point. It's just princes of areas. The princes of the world and the Holy Roman Emperor are there. <laughs> That's the room. Can you imagine walking into that room, right? No intimidation. So he walks into this room. Now, once again, he thinks, finally, I'm gonna, we're going to get to talk about it. I'm going to get to argue. Well, when he walks in, all of his books, copies of them, are sitting, they're just sitting there. And they don't want to talk. They just say, are these your books? And go, yeah. Will you recant of them? What he realizes is they didn't bring me here to talk about it. It's just a yes or no. And so he's thinking about it. He's looking. These are the princes of the world. This is all the power of the world. And he says, um, can I have 24 hours to think about it? 
And they go, yeah, you got 24 hours. So he goes back and, and he goes to his room and he's just thinking, what do I do? God, how do I want to be faithful to you? I, I think you've put a call on my life. I think you've, what do I do to this? What do I do? 23, 24 hours. He walks back into the most powerful room in the universe. Will you recant? And these are the words that Luther said. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I neither can nor will recant anything unless I am persuaded by reason and by scripture. For to go against conscience, it's neither safe nor honest. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And in that one moment, he defied an emperor. He defied the the Holy Roman Empire. And he talked about something that, again, opened a door. No one had done this before. My conscience requires me to not give in to power, but that I have to stick with truth, the word of God, even if it means consequence to me that, that I have a, there's a high, essentially what he's alluding to is there's a higher authority than you. 1521, um, following Luther's uh, imperial condemnation, because now he's now not just a heretic. Guess what he is? He's an outlaw. So his life can be taken. Because it's not just the Pope he defied, it's the emperor. Okay? He's a heretic and an outlaw. His life's taken. His life is up for grabs. Well, you remember that guy, Prince Frederick? You know, the, he, he, he liked him. He's my star guy. He's, he's made my university pretty famous, and it's a newer university. So he has this fake kidnapping of Luther. It, his life is crazy. I mean, the stuff that really happened to him, it's, it's insane. It's humorous. It's funny. It's so he's, he's going home, and these bandits come up all dressed and hooded, and they act like they're kidnapping him, and they kidnap him so everyone else can see it, and they kidnap him and run away. And he just takes him to um, Wartburg Castle, and he, he, he goes there incognito for like 10 months under the name Junker George, which transit looks Junker George, so don't say it that way. That sounds weird. And he like grows a big beard, and he acts like he's a knight and all this sort of thing for like 10 years. And he's up riding, and he goes down to the, um, you know, to the brew house and drinks beer, and then goes back up to his castle, and he's riding constantly and all this sort of thing. So he's there for 10 months. Now, Luther's over the next number of years, you guys, get this. I'm going to read some stats for you. It, it, it blew my mind when I came across this. Luther discovered that he had this ability to write and connect. And it's, his writing's really good. It's not just you know, highbrow academic you know, stuff that you can't really get. It's really gritty stuff, the way he writes. And so he's, um, he's writing and producing so much, and the, his achievement and strategy in writing is amazing. Listen, listen to what Alec Ryrie um, says. He, he gives some stats here. Because Luther's writing, but remember, he's got a lot of other people who are against him, vast majority of them. They're also writing and printing. So he says this, Luther's literary achievement has no parallels in the whole of human history. If that seems an exaggerant claim, consider the figures. During his 30-year public career, Luther produced 544 separate books, pamphlets, or articles, slightly more than one every three weeks. At his peak in 1523, he managed 55. That year, listen to this, 
390 separate editions of his books, both his new ones and his old ones, were published. Luther alone was responsible for one-fifth of the entire output of pamphlets by German presses during the whole 1920s. One guy. Luther's opponents were left gasping. One wrote, every day it rains Luther books. <laughs> when Churchman said that in 1521. During those same seven years, nearly 300 editions of anti-Luther books were published in Germany. The printers of these books complained that they can't even give them away. More than half of the ones that the detractors wrote, more than half were written in Latin, not even trying to reach the mass audiences. Only about a fifth of Luther's editions were written in Latin. Most of his stuff he went right to German. Why is that? And think of the strategy in that. He was writing for the scholarly world, right? But he, he was also writing for the average person. It kind of, kind of reminds me of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of these guys where he, he was a, a professor at Oxford, but he wasn't given a chair. He wasn't given a full professorship because people didn't respect him because you're writing kids' books and you're writing this stuff. Well, he was also writing highbrow things, literary you know, criticism, but you shouldn't stoop to that. And so all of the, well, I'm not going to stoop to write in German. Well, Luther did, and he won over the nation because he connected with the average person. 1522, Luther translates, listen to this, he translates the Greek New Testament into German in 11 weeks. 11 weeks. Um, in March, he returns back to Wittenberg where he leads the church. And then in 1523, uh, Luther's German translation of the Bible is published. This is, um, Nicole brought this in, showed me last week. This is really cool. If you guys want to come up afterwards and look at it. This is a print of the Martin Luther Bible, early 1800s. Sucker's big. Can I put that in your purse and carrying that around? The thing is huge. Look at this. And it's beautiful. And it's in the German language. It's in the German vernacular. Uh, he wanted to do church services, not in Latin, where people couldn't understand. He wanted to do it in German, where people could understand. Because it wasn't about ceremony. It's about people meeting with the God of the universe. That's what Luther was deeply passionate about. And see, the big picture piece is what, what came out of the Reformation and again, this is a guy who had no desire to start a Reformation movement. He wanted to reform the church, to bring it back to a simple piety of loving God, of serving my neighbor, of, of making Jesus accessible to the average person. And so everything that he did, there's stories told, there's all these books called Table Talk. Well, they were written by his students Basically, he, he got married a few years later. You'll see that on the outline there. Katie is what he called his wife. And he and Katie had like seven children. And um, he would have students come over and feed them meals all the time. And they were always just talking theology. And not highbrow stuff, but practical theology in life. How does it affect your life? And, and what kids started realizing who were sitting around his table, these students, is like, this is some pretty good stuff. I'm gonna... And so they start writing down, you know, things that are happening over the, over the dinner table. And, and um, he tells one... One, one, one student told the story of he said he, he had a dog and one time he, he said he held a piece of meat up and he was going like this, you know, and you can picture you like when you do this to a dog and they go, 
like, like, you know, you move the meat, like they're just locked in on it. And he said to his students, he said, oh, if only we were as attentive on the promises of, of God as he is on this piece of meat. So there were all these moments with students in his house where they were learning to love Jesus more deeply, doing, really doing life with them. And see, the whole world changed because of that. And some of the things that, that, are, that are significantly different, this is, I, again, I wish we had more time because it's, it's, it's so good. <laughs> but some of the things that came out of it that, that, that Luther really underlined and that other reformers, other guys, Zwingli and Calvin and all these other guys, things that kind of came out of it that have really changed how we do life and think about things. One is vocation or calling. Medieval world, calling refers to if you're going to become a monk or a priest or a nun or something. Otherwise, do whatever, you know, do whatever else you can. That's, this is sacred, that's calling, and then this is secular. You know, you're going you're to be a hairstylist or you know, you're going to be a plumber or you're going to be a tradesman or you're going to be a real estate. That's all secular stuff. You know, it's fine. Got it. Necessary evil, do it. But this is calling. And Luther said, that's baloney. That's absolute point. God created the world. You go back to Genesis 1, he created a world and he packed it full of potential and he said, I want you to cultivate, bring beauty out of it, build a city. Well, architecture and haircutting and do that, that's part of it. So he goes, that's sacred. It's, there's no line between sacred and secular. That's bunk. There is no line. Everyone is called. If you're called into some area, if you go into law, you better be called into law. If you go into real estate, you had better be called into real estate. And if you're not, figure out where you are called and go there. What am I called to do with my life? And so Luther would say things like, the milkmaid and the priest have equal sacred callings. Wow. So think about what that did. That elevated the dignity of the average person. Now I'm not just you know, in a, in a fiefdom or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this little guy and I've got a duke that I have to report to and I got to, you know, shovel this hay. No, this is part of sacred activity. I have human dignity, I have human worth. So vocation and calling radically transformed by the Reformation. The whole concept of the, the priesthood of all believers, I don't have time tonight, but read First Peter chapter 2. And Luther talks about this idea that it's not a priest that, like, I have to go to and they're my connector to God. Jesus is my connector to God. I can go directly to him, go directly to the Father through the Son. And that we collectively are priests, representatives of God to our world. So I have as much access to God as my local pastor does. Um, he's not somehow on a higher level because the sacred secular thing's down. There's the priesthood of all believers. All of these different elements, and there's like a dozen. I wish we had more time to go through them all. But then also things like um, free inquiry. Because all of a sudden, my conscience is constrained by nothing but the Bible and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what power, state, church, no one controls my conscience. Well, what does that do to um, forcing people to convert? Well, it doesn't have any place because it's not a true conversion. It's conscience that matters. So that has a huge impact on that. Um, this idea of uh, Christ's kingdom is both separate from kind of politics, power in the world, and higher too. It's, it's, it's higher than any human organization. 
that there is. And another thing that it did, in the past it was always assumed, it was just assumed, truth and power are the same thing. You want to know what truth is? Go to the one in power. Well, what this saw is, wait a minute, sometimes truth is opposed to power. And this idea of actually speaking truth to power, that was unheard of. And, it, and if you don't believe this is true, there was in fact, um, and you'll see this on the, on the chronology, there was, there was a peasant's war. The peasants, because of Luther's theology, had an uprising and said, this is, man, let's go, let's, you know, let's revolt against this. And Luther himself didn't even go far enough because Luther thought that, oh, that, you know, that's a bad idea. That's, there should be order and that sort of thing. But you see, they're taking his ideas and saying, uh-uh, I'm not going to be just a peasant. I'm not going to be treated this way. I have human dignity and worth and value based on... So Luther didn't even go far enough. He didn't see the ultimate outworkings of his own theology. And in fact, Luther, you know, Luther did a lot of really stupid, bad things throughout his life. If you've ever read much of Luther, one of the most difficult to understand things about Luther ever is a pamphlet he wrote toward the end of his life. Now, Luther was a guy, you have to understand, he's a man of his times. He's not a 21st century, you know, post-Enlightenment Westerner, okay? Um, but he was, he was pretty vulgar. Um, I mean, he, he said things that uh, just... Like horrible things that I could not say from the pulpit about the papacy, about other Protestants that he disagreed with. So he had, he had a pretty foul mouth and that sort of thing, you know. Um, but early on in his life, he said things about the Jews very um, affirming. You know, he said things like, gosh, the way that Jews have been treated by Christians, I don't blame them for not wanting to convert. Very positive things. At the end of his life, he, he writes one pamphlet in which he says it's called The Lies of the Jews, and Luther, as an old man, had written a book, read, read a book from the 1300s from a man who, who wrote lies about the Jews, said things like, do you realize they're going around and poisoning wells? It's like a conspiracy theory. And they're like abducting children, murdering them. And they're saying things about the Virgin Mary, some really gross things. And so Luther wrote in this pamphlet, he said things like, you know, we should maybe confiscate the property of these Jews. Maybe we should take their money. Maybe we should burn down their synagogues. Well, you fast forward 500 years later, there was a socialist re regime in Germany who of the mountains of material that Luther had written picked out one pamphlet. And they used that pamphlet to say, see, we should burn down their synagogues and we should take their possessions. And they used that. And Luther's name is forever marred by that. But here, I think, is the big takeaway. Luther was a sinner. Luther was not consistent with his own theology that he had found in, in Scripture. And what that does is that tells us that hero worship is never appropriate. I can praise Luther where he does things right, but he's, he's no hero. There is only one who is worthy of worship. Only one. Everyone else will let you down. <laughs> and that is Jesus. The same Jesus that Luther, this messed up, broken sinner met and he said that was my that was my moment that that was my fortress moment he called it in fact he even put that in a song one of his most famous songs a mighty fortress is our god 